Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us for the Pastor's Bible Study Podcast. I'm Rev. Jessica Strisco, and this is week five of our study in the season of Lent, a time of spiritual preparation ahead of Easter. Our study has been called Risking Faith, and this week our theme is Risking the Loss of Friends. We'll look at the stories in the Bible about Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples and ask how those narratives call us to risk and to friendship and to service as well. It's great to be back with you. All right, so today our subject is on the Last Supper. We're going to be reading different versions and accounts of the Last Supper that Jesus shares with his disciples. And we're also going to be thinking about, as we have been each week, different risks that Jesus takes and invites us to take. And the risk we're focusing on for this study is risking the loss of friends. So um, this is week five of our Lenten study. And next week's going to be our last one together. The, and we'll, so we are meeting during Holy Week, and I look forward to our conversation then as well. And then after that, Reverend Trudy will be back at the helm. And so it's been a great joy to be a part of this with all of you, to go deeper into these stories about Jesus' life and focus on the, these days in the week that led up to Jesus' crucifixion. So again, our theme this week is risking the loss of friends. I'm continuing to use as my inspiration and my main source this book from Amy Jill Levine called Entering the Passion of Jesus. And I hope you've found it as meaningful as I have. So the story of the Last Supper. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have in their versions of this account uh, a discussion about the bread and the cup as the body and the blood of Jesus. Uh, we also have an account of the Last Supper that comes to us in Paul's letters. So his letters to the church in Corinth deal with the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And so we have an account of, um, of that meal from Paul as well. And then we have John's Gospel, which talks to us about the bread and the cup, but John does that much earlier in his gospel. And we'll talk about that a little later. John's gospel talks about those themes in chapter six. And so by the time we get to the Last Supper, we have a different story in John's gospel. We have the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So let's dig a little bit deeper into all of those stories. We're going to start with Luke's gospel today as kind of the representative of the synoptic gospels. Then we're going to move into Paul's description and discussion in 1 Corinthians, and then we'll end looking at John's gospel. So somebody asked earlier what the scripture was for today. Uh, fasten your seatbelts, we've got a few. Um, so Luke's gospel, similar to Matthew and Mark's, has the Last Supper occurring as, as the festival, as the holy um, days of Passover begin. So that's the setting uh, for Luke and Mark and Matthew. Let me read to us from Luke chapter 22, verses 14, and I'll read through 18 at this point. 
When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Oh, there are two beautiful birds right outside my window, but they, they did scare me. <laughs> um, but here they are. Uh, then he took a cup and after giving thanks, Jesus said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So you might notice that in, in mixed in with the words that we're familiar with about the bread and the cup might be a, a theme that we're less familiar with in talking about at the Lord's Supper, uh, Jesus connecting to uh, the kingdom of God and saying that he won't uh, eat this bread, drink this cup again until it is fulfilled. And for me and for probably some of you, there's a reminder in those words of Jesus saying earlier in the gospels that the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is at hand. There's this sense of anticipation for the kingdom of God, even as uh, we experience God breaking into the world in the incarnation of Jesus. And I think it's meant to have us also think about some of the words that Jesus speaks in the post-resurrection accounts. So some of the ways uh, that we encounter the risen Christ. I'm thinking especially about the walk to Emmaus story in Luke chapter 24, where we see Jesus sit at the table and eat the bread and drink the cup again with his disciples. So as we read these words from Luke, giving the account of the Last Supper, we're meant to think back in the gospel and we're meant to, to then hear a resonance with the stories that come a bit later. So the Passover meal is the context for this event. And so I wanna dig into that a little bit for us. Uh, Passover is sometimes called the Feast of Freedom. We've talked about that before. It celebrates God's work in the Exodus, where God freed the Israelites from their slavery and oppression in Egypt. And if you were to go and read chapters one through 12 in the book of Exodus, um, let me just give you a, a summary really quick. You might remember that Exodus starts with a tremendous amount of oppression of the Hebrew people, that Pharaoh is ordering um, all the male children born to the Hebrew people to be killed. Um, and, and how the, the midwives kind of revolt about that. They, they won't uh, do that. They, and then decrees that come to continue to try to limit and, and oppress the Hebrew population while they're in slavery. And, and then we have the story of Moses' mother sending him in a basket right down the river to save him from that terrible fate. And when he grows, we have him coming because of God's call to face Pharaoh and, and say, let, let my people go. And then we have the heart of Pharaoh hardening, where he won't allow the Hebrew people out of slavery and bondage. And then we have that story of the plagues that come upon Egypt. 
And the final plague, you might remember, is that the, the firstborn children of the Egyptians um, die in that plague. And what's done is the, the Hebrew people are instructed to put the blood of a, a lamb over their doorposts, and that is how they are spared from the plague. And so each year as they remember God freeing them from, uh, from this slavery and oppression, they eat that meal and put the blood of the lamb above their doorpost in remembrance, in, in celebration of being freed from their oppression. Now how Passover is celebrated today is, is quite different from how it was celebrated initially, but the stories are told and remembered. Um, and that theme of being freed from slavery is continue, continued, of course. So in the temple era, in the time of Jesus, there would have been sacrifices made in the temple. Um, the, the people would bring whatever animal or produce that they were offering to God as a sacrifice. And there were all types of reasons to offer a sacrifice. It could be a Thanksgiving offering, which uh, sounds to me like this Passover lamb was a Thanksgiving offering. There were sin offerings. There were whole burnt offerings where everything you took would be um, consumed in flames on the altar. But most of the sacrifices, most of them that were brought to the temple, the, the people would bring, if it was an animal that was to be sacrificed, the priest would actually butcher the animal and then burn the portion that was to be offered in the temple for, um, to God and then give back the remaining pieces, parts of the animal, for the family that brought it to, to eat. And so it was sort of this way of sharing a meal with God, in a sense. And um, I just have to say, I'm glad that butchering is no longer part of the priestly role, because I, don't, I, <laughs> I wouldn't enjoy that myself. I'm sure there are many of my rabbi colleagues who are also pleased that that's not a current part of the role. So all, all different types of sacrifices that were offered. Again, this Passover meal is, is a celebration of God freeing uh, God's people from slavery. So then we get to, in Luke's gospel, as we continue to read, we're on verse 19 now, and 19 and 20. Then Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Luke and then Paul, the Apostle Paul, they are the ones who really emphasize remembering Jesus as we eat the bread and drink the cup, um, that we're called to that remembrance. And Passover, as you may know is a time for remembrance. It's remembering that story of, of God's work, of God's freeing action in our lives. And um, I've always really loved the idea that we're called to remembrance. We're called to pass on those stories that are sacred in our faith. 
Luke and Paul are also the ones who emphasize the new covenant that Jesus establishes. A new, this new promise of a relationship with God where God once again claims uh, us as God's people. And so we're called to eat the bread and drink the cup and remember that promise of God. So one thing that all four of the Gospels agree on has to do with what comes next um, in the scripture, and that is that, that Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, is present at the Last Supper. All four Gospels agree on that. They also agree on the fact that Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. Uh, just so you know, Judas does not appear by name in Paul's recounting of Jesus' words. But that's not too surprising because the reason that Paul is writing about the Last Supper is to deal with the way that the Corinthian church is practicing the Last Supper. And we'll get into that a little later. But it, he's not really talking about who all was present. He's focused a bit more on how it's practiced by, that, by the early church. Uh, I mentioned last week, I think it was, that there's going to be a Villains of the Bible series coming up um, for one of the sermon series in the coming year, and we're going to have a full focus on Judas on one of those Sundays. So there's going to be a lot more to say about that. But I want to share a bit of his story now. So let's read, continuing in Luke's Gospel, verse 21 uh, through 27. But see, Jesus says, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to ask one another, which one of them it could be who would do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So you see in Luke's gospel a little bit of that theme of service that we will see later in John's gospel as well. Um, but let's talk a bit about how Judas is described in the gospels. As we move from what we believe to be the earliest gospel written, which was very likely Mark, and then to Matthew and Luke, which probably came later, close, closer together, and then finally John's gospel, we see Judas looking, um, as, as Levine puts it, increasingly malevolent as we go further in time. So she says, it is therefore difficult to travel back behind the New Testament texts and find the quote, real Judas. The gospels leave us with different stories and so different impressions, each one worse than the previous one. Rather than debate the historicity of Judas, we do well to look at his individual stories because here we can enter more deeply into the heart of the passion narrative. And so I, I do wanna highlight uh, the character of Judas 
in each of the Gospels just briefly for us. So in Mark's early account, Judas begins as an exemplary disciple, Levine says. Um, but then after the, that anointing where the woman comes and anoints Jesus, it's right after that that we see Judas um, go to the chief priests seeking to betray Jesus. Mark does not explicitly give a motive for Judas' betrayal. Um, we can speculate based on what had just happened, but that's really all it is. It's a speculation. Then we, in Matthew's account, uh, the timing of the anointing of Jesus followed by Judas being moved to betray him, is that is similar. Um, what's different in Matthew's gospel is there is a motive introduced, and, and it's greed. And so Matthew's gospel is actually the only one that talks about those 30 pieces of silver that Judas um, is said to have received um, for betraying Jesus. And, and Matthew's gospel repeats that three times. So they re he's really wanting to communicate that amount was given as in exchange um, for loyalty to Jesus. Luke's gospel is, adds just another detail. It says that, uh, that Judas is possessed, that Satan had entered into Judas, and, um, and that that's part of the reason that he betrays Jesus. And then John adds one more um, piece to the story. He, he confirms Luke's suggestion, Luke's point, that the devil had come into the heart of Judas uh, Iscariot. And then it also adds in John's gospel that um, Judas, rather than an unnamed person or a disciple, was the person protesting the anointing of Jesus. So you might remember as we talked about that story last week, uh, the anointing of Jesus, the person who speaks up against the woman who does that anointing is Judas in John's gospel. And again, concerned um, about enriching himself. There's a greed motive there as well. And so it's not only these uh, details about Judas and his motives that differ from one gospel to the next. It's also um, a difference that we begin to see in um, the fate of Judas. So what happens to him afterward? So following the betrayal of Judas, uh, or Judas's betrayal of Jesus, Judas disappears from Mark's gospel. We don't, we don't hear anything else about him. Uh, in the book of Acts, which is a, a corollary to Luke's gospel, uh, Luke, through Acts, tells us that Judas bought a field with the money that had been received from the betrayal, and that, that Judas, and I'm quoting here from Acts chapter 1, verse 18, falling headlong, Judas burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So we have a very dramatic cautionary tale about what happens to the one who betrayed Jesus. And we see other cautionary tales about the fate of Judas pop up in even beyond what's in the Bible. 
so some of the other his church leader writings of that time. So again, um, this is what Levine says about it. She says, these are co clearly cautionary tales that say, act like Judas and you too will die a disgraceful way. So that's kind of the point we're supposed to get from that. I, I think, as I read about this, I think about how at around the time that the gospels were written, the Christian community, the, the Jesus follower community, were facing an increasing amount of persecution and there were betrayals happening of, um, in, in that early Christian community. Family members would betray family members and it would cost, uh, cost the lives of sometimes of those that were betrayed. And so I kind of wonder if um, these cautionary tales became all the more important as people faced the possibility of betrayal and death themselves. And then I think, how, how do these cautionary tales about Judas, how might they speak in our day? Um, whether it's in relationships that we have or, or broader relationships, nations with nations, that sort of thing. How do they translate into our day? So Matthew tells a different story about Judas. Um, in Matthew's account, Judas throws those pieces of silver that he gets in exchange for the betrayal. He throws them back into the temple. And then Matthew's gospel says that he hangs himself. And you might remember Matthew as a gospel writer is constantly looking at connecting us back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And there's a story that we're meant to be reminded of in what happens to Judas. It's a story of a person named Ahithophel, who is one of David, King David's advisors. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 17, uh, verse 23. Ahithophel had affiliated himself with King David's son, Absalom, who uh, was leading a civil war, trying to become king himself. And when this advisor realized that it wasn't going to work, this attempted betrayal of King David, he, uh, he hangs himself. So we're meant to see those stories as similar of what happens to this advisor of King David and then what happens to Judas who tries to betray, who does betray the son of David. And I want to stop there to note the tragedy of suicide, because I don't want to mention that topic uh, without also mentioning the continued ways that people suffer um, with mental illness, with suicidal thoughts. And so I want to note that God's grace never abandons us, that there's always access to forgiveness. There's always a place for us. Uh, with God. And I also want to lift up some resources that are helpful. We have a New Life Counseling Center that's a part of our church with really excellent mental health uh, caregivers and therapists. And um, you can find that on our website, um, fumcsd.org slash counseling center. Really wonderful people and resources there. And there's also, of course, the suicide hotline and resources uh, up up to sandiego.org 
um, is a good one. So UP, the number two, sd.org, all good resources for us. As we continue on the topic of betrayal, I think it's helpful to consider what Judas can teach us because that's in many ways why his story continues to be shared throughout, throughout our Christian history. So Levine says this, she says, since we will all most likely at some point in our lives be, be at table, at home, in an office, at church with someone who has betrayed us or perhaps someone whom we have betrayed we need to remember not only the anointing woman who took risks, but we need to remember Judas. In all four Gospels, Judas shares the Last Supper. He is present in the synoptics when Jesus speaks of his body and his blood, when Jesus distributes the bread, and when Jesus announces that he will be betrayed. Is Judas part of the group or not? Has he a chance of being redeemed? Can he be saved? Judas, too, she says, is in the image and likeness of the divine. He is not a demon, although we may, he may seem to us to be one. He is a human being, and we cannot afford to, to demonize human beings. Judas calls us to conscience. I really appreciated the way she phrased that and that invitation for reflection um, when we experience betrayal and, and also when we might betray others. Uh, I was having a conversation the other day with my older daughter who turned four in February and she has been going to chapel as part of her preschool experience and, we, and they were learning about Jesus going on the cross. And she was asking me, who, who put Jesus on the cross? Why is he there? And I was like, oh my, here we go. Theological conversation with a four-year-old, right? Those are great. Um, and she asked me, did, did bad guys put Jesus there? And so we got to talk about how Jesus, that we all have a role in that story, and that Jesus even loved bad guys. And if Jesus can even love bad guys, that means Jesus can love us as well. Um, so that's how I tried to navigate that, but I thought I'd share, it resonated with me as I thought about Levine's words uh, about Judas, that we might remember that God, through Jesus, even loves bad guys, and that means Jesus can share that love with us as well. Let's talk about the image of the bread and the cup, um, that pinnacle, I would say, of how we think about the Last Supper. Um, Holy Communion. So I want to turn now to Paul's words in the letter to the Corinthian church. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 23 to 26. This is what Paul writes. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those are familiar words, I think, to many of us. Uh, our communion liturgy in the United Methodist Church and in many other denominations is drawn from this passage of scripture. And isn't it powerful to think about how speaking those words, listening to those words at the communion table links us all the way back to the earliest communities of Jesus followers? I think that's really powerful and not, not always something we consider. So verse 23 might be the least familiar part of that passage I just read, that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And a couple things to know about that verse. One is that Paul was convinced that Jesus' return would be imminent. And so there's an urgency to his words that is powerful. And so that's part of his, um, what he's sharing there. Also, it's helpful to know the context of why Paul is talking to the Corinthian church at all about the Last Supper. And uh, there had been, we can tell by the, the passage around what I just read for us in this chapter of 1 Corinthians, that there's been a lot of division in the Corinthian church and that the way that they're celebrating communion together, the Last Supper together, has really emphasized division rather than connection. That the, the wealthier people would eat a lot of food and the poorer people sometimes would have nothing. And so it was, it was not creating the sense of remembrance and community with God and one another that was intended. And so Paul is correcting that. And so he's reminding them of, of what Jesus did at that supper and then calling them to act um, accordingly, to take it seriously, to not, um, to not create more division, but rather to create reconciliation when we join in communion. So another point that Levine lifts up is that she, she points to a translation issue in the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which is the one I've been reading for us. So she, she says that the translation that says, uh, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, that that word betrayed is a possible translation of the Greek word, but she thinks there's a better one. And uh, the better translation she would offer is, to hand over, when he, when he was handed over. And it's a Greek word, paradidomi. And nowhere else in, in this letter or any of Paul's letters does he say anything else about Jesus being betrayed. But he does, Paul does talk about um, giving the bread, giving the cup, handing them over, it, with this same Greek word. So, so Levine sees the connection thematically and, and therefore the translation of that word to be a bit about how, how God in Christ was self-surrendering. Um, I see a connection too to that self-emptying that we talked about from the Philippians 2 hymn. So that, that Jesus is... Um, giving of himself 
with the bread and the cup. So how, let's reflect together on how food and dietary practices shape us and shape our identities, both as people and as communities of faith. So Levine says that Lent is often associated not with eating, but with fasting, right? And, and that refraining from eating can be just as influential into a sense of identity for us. Uh, so that's, that's one way that we try as Christians to mark this season as a sacred time. Um, she points to the German philosopher Ludwig Farbrock, I think I say that right, I did not study German, um, who said, you are what you eat, right? You are what you eat. So we're reminded of that sense of identity that comes. Uh, and we see this a lot in religious uh, traditions. So uh, Jewish people at the time of Jesus, as well as many today, are distinguished by a certain set of dietary practices. So too with people of the Muslim faith. There are some dietary regulations that many practice. And even, even some Christians who have dietary um, practices, as we've talked about, not only during Lent, sometimes other parts of the year as well. But certainly, as Christians, we are impacted, connected, shaped by sharing this sacred meal of Holy Communion, right? This is something we do that sets us apart in some ways, right? It shapes our identity. Um, I was thinking about how if, <laughs> um, if we don't have Hawaiian bread, right, as part of our communion, sometimes that causes quite the stir because it's become part of our identity, part of how we relate to each other. It's, um, it's part of our tradition, right? Depending on the congregation you're connected to. Um, I think too about John Wesley and our connection to the, the Methodist movement. Uh, John Wesley encouraged what he called constant communion, frequent communion. Um, and it was, it was kind of by historical necessity that we got into the pattern that many Methodist churches practice today of maybe monthly communion or even quarterly communion because you might, if you know some Methodist history, you might remember that as the church was growing rapidly in America, there were circuit riders who were the pastors and the pastors were the one who would come and bring Holy Communion and they might not be able to get to your town, your gathered church, uh, except for maybe once a month or once a quarter and so that's when communion would be celebrated. But if John Wesley were to have it his way, we would have it all the time, right? There's no magic, magic number to once a month or anything like that. Um, so there's this sense of that sacred meal of communion, the sacrament of communion, is a key part of our identity, of who we are to God, who we are to each other. So let's look at, again at verse 26 in this passage um, where Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So again, Paul sharing those words out, out of the, the conflict that he sees happening in the Corinthian church that um, we shouldn't take the sacrifice of Jesus 
lightly. We should take it very seriously. And the implications of that sacrifice for how we are called to live. How are we called to sacrifice in a way um, that can approximate even the great sacrifice that Christ has offered on our behalf? All right. So I also want to balance that and just note that we as United Methodists practice an open table, right? An open table where all are welcome to come and receive communion. And it may be that people who have never been to, to a church before, who don't, don't know anything about uh, the Christian faith, come and feel moved by God's spirit to receive uh, the sacrament. And that's part of why in our tradition also we have um, elders, pastors, who are ordained to offer the sacrament. So they're kind of charged with that idea of keeping order, of honoring um, what communion is really all about. And then that allows us to have that openness at the table and still um, hold these words of Paul, taking them seriously. All right, so here's what Levine says also about, about Paul's words. She says, when Jesus says, take this, take this is my body, and then lifts up the cup and says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he is using sacrificial imagery. Today, sacrificial language does not resonate well with most of us because we do not live in a culture where sacrifice in the sense of spilling blood on an altar and then eating part of that sacrificial offering is practiced. At the time of Jesus, everyone, whether Jewish or Samaritan or Gentile, understood the practice of and the efficacy of sacrifice. So that's, that's interesting too, because although the dietary practices of the Jewish community would have definitely set them apart from the rest of Greco-Roman society, um, in Jesus' day, the practice of sacrifice would have been understood throughout. That would, have, that would have permeated different sections of society in Jesus' day in a way that it doesn't, obviously, in ours, right? Um, however, she wants to flag what is different, um, what is shocking about Jesus' words in this passage. Uh, she says, in no case in the Jewish world was blood to be eaten, not in the temple, not in the home, not in the field. And that commandment had been in place since the time of Noah, when God proclaimed, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. That's Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. And she goes on to say, nor is the eating of human flesh permitted then or now. We can hear the shock of Jesus' words clearly in John's gospel. Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Um, that's John chapter 6, verse 53. And the disciples say, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And Levine says, this is a good question. So, so why create that shock. Uh, Levine says it is essential that we hear the shock of the language because the shock is part of how Jesus teaches. 
And if we think about other teachings of Jesus, we can, we can think of other instances where the shock is part of how Jesus teaches. And I think one of the um, possible hurdles we have as people who have celebrated Holy Communion many times and heard that language many times is we might lose sight of the shock that, it, that is meant to be there. Um, and then what to make of that, what to, how to allow that shock to um, open us up to the teaching that God has for us and the, the movement of the Spirit each time we receive communion. Levine also adds this. She says, if we take the Eucharist for granted, if we take communion as simply a form of dinner, then we miss the shock. Jesus is giving up his life, and he wants that to be remembered. He is allowing his body to be broken, and he wants that to be remembered. So there's a response called for from us uh, because of what Jesus has done, and, and we're meant to consider that response, um, pray for that response each time we participate in the sacrament. All right, let's go now to John's Gospel and the focus on service. So I've already talked about how, how in John's Gospel he talks about the bread and the cup that Jesus offer, connecting those to the body and the blood. Um, that's in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. And so by the time we get to the Last Supper, John's offering a different story for us. Um, and it's that story of, of washing the feet of his disciples. And the time of the Last Supper in, Jesus, in John's Gospel is also different. So for John, Levine points out that the Last Supper takes place 24 hours earlier than it does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, so that the meal is not a Passover Seder. In John's Gospel, Jesus uh, is crucified not on the first day of Passover, but, but on the day before, when the lambs for the Passover Seder are being sacrificed in the temple. And so she says, thus Jesus does not need to speak about eating the lamb, the Paschal offering, because in John's Gospel, Jesus is the lamb. John has changed the symbolism here. Whereas the Paschal offering, the lamb is not a sin offering. So in Passover, the lamb is not a sin offering. We talked about it being like a Thanksgiving offering for God freeing God's people from slavery. But in John's gospel, uh, there's a powerful connection made to the image of Jesus as, a, as the lamb, as a sin offering. So it's different, but I think the reason for that comparison is really, um, really profound. It resonated deeply with the early Christian community that John was speaking to. It resonates with many uh, today, many of, our, many of us. Um, but it, I do think it's helpful to see how the imagery is being used differently. There's a different way of communicating. Um, because if we think about um, freedom from oppression, freedom from slavery, which is the focus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, many of us might talk about freedom from sin and moving into forgiveness as comparable. But those are different metaphors. 
right? They're different metaphors that do have a lot to say to each other. Uh, just helpful to notice the difference. So Levine writes, if we think of Jesus as the Passover offering, we can better understand how John's symbolism works. That first night of Passover at the time of the exodus from Egypt is when the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites, those houses marked with the blood of the original Paschal offering, but killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Jesus as the new Paschal lamb, the lamb who takes away sin, will similarly save his people for eternal life. The original Passover marked the movement from slavery to freedom. The Passover for John symbolically marks the movement from sin to reconciliation, from death to life. So let me just quickly read for us John chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Now before the festival of, pa of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. That foot washing, some of you might know, that was the role of a slave in those days. Um, the, the rabbi, the teacher, would never have done this for disciples. Uh, it was very shocking. Very shocking. So I was talking about the shock of uh, the woman who anointed Jesus' feet in John's gospel. She would have been acting out of great humility. What Jesus does in washing his disciples' feet is, is even more humble, even more shocking. Uh, Levine speculates maybe he was inspired by that woman uh, to go this extra mile. I think that's a, an interesting thought. Um, and of course, Jesus, when he comes to Peter, Simon Peter says, Lord, you can't wash my feet. I'm sure it was unthinkable, not just to Simon, but to others who were there at the table. But then Jesus insists. Jesus says, I must do this for you. You don't understand it now. Um, but this, this has to happen or you won't have a, a share with me. And then almost out of desperation, uh, Simon Peter says, um, well, then, then also my hands and my head. And I've always thought of that response as just Simon Peter's overflowing desire to be connected to Jesus. And I think that is one way we could read it. Um, Levine offers another way that I find really compelling as well. She says that, um, that Peter just can't, he's, he's trying to deflect again and say, then make this about hygiene and about my need for cleanliness rather than you, Jesus, as my rabbi and Lord uh, coming to me as, as a servant or slave would. So I, I, I love how Jesus kindly redirects uh, Peter, um, as he does so many times in the Gospels, to remind him that Jesus is showing him something. Jesus is teaching him something. 
And what Jesus is teaching becomes uh, very clear because he sits down after washing the disciples' feet and he tells them uh, directly, uh, do you know what I have done for you? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And so connecting that call for us, the call that we have to serve others, um, and the way that Jesus' teaching on this was more, it was more than just his words. He demonstrated it to his disciples. Because of their deep friendship with each other, he could shock them in, in his profound humility to help them really come to understand the kind of service, the self-giving service we are called to for one another, uh, for those who would follow Jesus. FUMCSD Pastors Bible Study Podcast is a production of First United Methodist Church of San Diego and is available anywhere where you can listen to podcasts. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at First Church SD and also our YouTube channel, First United Methodist Church of San Diego. This podcast was edited and produced by William Kane, executive producer, First United Methodist Church of San Diego, audio mixed by William Kane. FUMCSD Pastors Bible Study is a First United Methodist Church of San Diego production, copyright 2021.